millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Court Case Podcast with me, your host, James Court. And Sweet Tea. We've got a very special episode today. We're going to be interviewing exonerated prisoner Jeffrey Deskovic. Yes, a serious court case on the show today. Jeffrey Deskovic was wrongfully imprisoned for 16 years for a crime he did not commit. Well, we're going to be talking about the crime, the prison, the trial and where he is now. Hopefully everything is covered today. The justice system may have failed him, but we're not going to today on the Court Case Podcast. All of that is coming right after this this. Okay, hello everybody. We are live with Jeffrey Deskovic on the show today. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Thanks. How uh, how are you doing today? How's work been? Work has been very good. It's it's kind of uh today is kind of um it's a working day off. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I'm mostly I'm mostly off today. It's Sunday, except mm. that, you know, I'm doing this interview and, you know, I actually have another interview uh, later on tonight. So I have that sandwiched around uh, nice. a little bit of uh, recreation. But mm. earlier today, I uh, I played four games of chess. I went three and one. So oh, nice. And uh, now, you know, I'm visiting with the uh, uh, so I'm visiting with some of my friends, except when I'm doing the interviews. Oh, oh nice cool. one. Um, so how has life been for you during the pandemic? How's it been this past year? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it's really been difficult because a lot of things are shut down mm. and, you know, and or hours are modified. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many times do you want to eat out? It becomes a little, <laughs> becomes a little frustrating with everything is uh, closed early. Yeah. Uh, I mean, quite frankly, it's something that's triggered me. Yeah. You know, a lot of, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, it does remind me of prison. So, look, I've, I've heard yeah. people say, look, it's not like being in prison because you're still free. There's no guards. You're not in a cell. Mm. You have the internet. You have television. And however else you watch movies, if that's Amazon Prime, Netflix, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, all the, 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 the violence that's in prison is like, yeah, I get all that. That's all true enough. Yeah. yeah. That having been said, there are certain uh, commonalities between being incarcerated and the pandemic, mm. for example. I can imagine. Yeah. You do, yeah, you can't do many things, right? You, so you can't travel. You can travel much more limited, whether literally is in a car, is in a plane, or even, you know, wherever you're going to walk to, drive to, ride a bike to. You know, your locations are 
uh, greatly, uh, great, greatly, greatly diminished. Yeah. So there's that, you know, the, it, it is quite isolating, which is another characteristic of prison. Mm-hmm. Another thing is that nobody knows how long this thing is going to end. It's going to, it's going to take before that's it true. ends. So that's also, but then maybe, maybe the last thing that uh, jumps out at me is that uh, everything you're kind of living in your head and everything is some undefined point in time in the future that yeah. nobody actually knows when and if it's going to get there. Yeah. So you can think about things more than actually do things. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. So it has kind of triggered me, you know, somewhat, you know, uh, in that aspect. And, uh, you know, it does get, uh, you know, it does get difficult. You know, yeah. It does get a little bit, uh, a little bit depressing. Yeah. But, you know, so especially for people living on their own are you are you living on your own yeah i am living i am living on my i am living on my own mm. so yeah i do have that i do have that uh challenge yeah yes. that can't yeah. be easy for you mm. no it's uh no it's definitely it's definitely not uh you know and uh, at times i get i feel like zoomed out yeah, yeah of course like really lonely and everything yeah. yeah yes uh the other thing is um uh I'm just gonna say. Um, sometimes I try to make up for that. Yeah. Uh, and I and I've kind of gotten extreme in the other direction, and I kind of overschedule myself. I mean, oh. five yeah, or six or seven things to do. So I'm not bored. I'm not depressed. But then you know, I I, I, I can feel it's hard to it's hard to it's good to do like one or two important things, and then have a series of lesser things of a lesser importance sandwiched around that. Yeah, you know, as opposed to a format that you go from one important thing to another important thing to another. Yeah, to another, yeah. To another, mm. to another. I mean, it gets exhausting after a while, a little bit. Yeah. So, um, I want to get stuck in with your story and um, what's going on with you now. But I just want to ask first. Um, you came, you came to us to um tell your story. How did you come across our show? Yeah. So, I I'm on a list serve called Podcast Guests, and they list various podcasts and i've also joined a number of uh of um podcast facebook groups mm. and i've also uh ran searches within instagram oh, okay yeah. mm. so one of those three was how i came across <laughs> i love that have you, you been know, on many I, mean, pod- I applied to a lot i mm. applied to a lot and yeah. uh you know i don't remember which of those three i came across how i came across you specifically but yeah I do remember, you know, with the with with the name and the beat mm. appeared to be where this would be a fit. So yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. Have yeah. you been on many podcasts before? I I have, I yeah. have. I've been on maybe forty or fifty. And wow, oh, damn. okay, more it, than what we've done, to of, be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of amazing how many podcasts are available because I remember when podcasts were new mm. and it was just a, a handful of them, and now you know there's hundreds if not thousands yeah of them. Mm. you know and uh you know the vast majority of them do have decent sized audiences so yeah. it's not like people are podcasting and there's you know five ten people or less that are listening i mean mm. people are building uh building audiences and what i really love about podcasts as well as you know blog talk radio and even uh, writing blogs is that everybody's platform for for the exercise of their freedom of speech is much uh, much larger now. It's not yeah. limited to traditional media, so you can get 
your message out there. And I think that that's uh, and I and I think that that's really good. Free exchange of ideas and information and learning and awareness. I, I think it's all it's all wonderful. No, absolutely. Podcasts are really taking off, aren't they? Especially yeah. the past year in lockdown. Mm. And it- yeah, I think really serial the podcast serial really opened it up for everybody. That kind of uh, really was the, was the sphere for the craze around podcasting. You know, um, in terms of uh, listenership, and then you know people saw that there was a space to do it. So mm. it, uh, it's really it's really great, and it leads to wonderful opportunities like this one. Yeah, literally, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, sure. I probably would have never come heard of you. You probably wouldn't have heard of me as as well. So mm. it's, it's great in that way as well. I can't wait to get learning about your whole yeah your whole situation. So let's dive in. Whatever y'all. <laughs> All right, here we go. Let's get to the meat of it. So. Um, our listeners, we in previous episodes, we've briefed our listeners briefly on on your story. But could you like tell us like the main the crux, rundown, yeah, the main rundown? Yeah, sure. I'll summarize it really nice and tight, and then anything you want me to elaborate on, I'll rely on you for your follow up questions. You Perfect. <laughs> so, uh, I spent sixteen years in prison. Okay. Uh, from I got arrested when I was 16. I spent from age 17 to 32 in prison. Wow. Uh, my murder and rape I did not commit. Mm-hmm. I was wrongfully convicted despite a pretrial negative DNA test result. And uh, ultimately, my wrongful conviction was caused by a coerced false confession, prosecutorial misconduct, fraud by the medical examiner, terrible public defender. You know, I lost... I, I uh, lost seven appeals. I got turned down for parole because I maintained my innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility. And ultimately, I was exonerated uh, after a total of 16 years in prison uh, through further DNA testing. So the DNA data bank had been created, and that allowed me to go from saying that the DNA didn't match me to also being able to say who would actually did match and so ultimately all of my charges were dismissed on actual innocence grounds after five years i received some financial compensation i used some of that to start the jeffrey deskovic foundation for justice whose purpose is to free other people who are wrongfully imprisoned like i was and to pursue policy changes aimed at preventing that from happening to others so thus far we've been able to free 10 people we've been able to pass seven laws uh, I have a master's degree. My master's thesis is on wrongful conviction causes and reform. Wow. And and lastly, I got tired of sitting in the front row of the courtroom. I wanted to sit at the defense table, represent some of the clients, make some of the arguments. So as we sit here and speak right now, I am an attorney. Oh my well. God, that's amazing. That is such a fantastic Congratulations, mm. yeah. Thank you. So that's it all, that's it all in uh, a nutshell. So it's... You know, it's uh, all advocacy, all day, all the time. Mm. You know, mainly on innocence, but I also have a strong secondary interest in other justice reform issues. Yeah, which don't, which I don't spearhead, but I do uh, jump in at strategic times and ways and use my voice and you know attraction for the media and all of that to further those issues in collaboration with the organizations that are spearheading those issues. Wow. Okay. Well, that's that's you amazing know. that you like you've come out and you wanted to help other people. Like yeah. you've done something with it. Right. I feel very fortunate that first of all that I even made it out. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm one of the lucky ones. I mean, my case is not rare. 
uh, per the National Registry of Exonerations has been 2,775 uh, 2, people have been exonerated. But those are us who have made it out. That's not the people that are still yeah. roughly imprisoned. Mm-hmm. So I do feel fortunate in that way. And then I also feel that I've had educational opportunities that other people haven't had necessarily. And so I do feel a strong moral obligation to do what I to do what I can. Mm. You know, hence hence doing this uh, hence doing this advocacy work. And it makes sense of everything that happened to me in a kaleidoscopic type of way. I believe my purpose is to fight wrongful conviction for general justice reform in the world. And that's how I make sense of what happens to me. And I take that energy that I feel and I channel it into the work. Yeah. And, you know, that's my vow. That's my release. That's how I'm not uh, angry and making a difference that's right that's that is amazing and you definitely are making a difference like you've got 10 other people out like that's Mm. amazing that's so good i uh i wanted to talk about the crime first and sort of Of doing sections so you were convicted because you gave a false confession is that are false confessions common does this happen a lot yes it does uh coerced false confessions have caused wrongful convictions in 25 percent wow proven wrongful convictions okay while adults have given coerced false confessions, particularly vulnerable populations are youth and people with mental health issues. Mm. And um, do you remember when you gave that false confession? Do you know sort of like why mm. you thought to do that? What was going through your head? Yeah, sure. I mean, I can, I mean, I can tell you what was going through my head, but I think the better answer mm. it would be if I can explain the circumstances around it. If I can yeah. put a little context. Yeah, sure. Okay. Sure. Okay. So uh, background wise, uh, let me just share that before I was a teenager, I wanted to be a cop when I grew up. Okay. So I had, so I got on the police radar because the police interviewed many students from the high school and some of them told the police they might want to talk to me. Okay. So that's what I got on their radar. Uh, secondly, uh, the victim was a classmate in two of my classes as a freshman, one as a sophomore. I knew her name. She knew mine. That was it. We weren't even on a high buy basis. Okay. I was a sensitive teenager, and the police thought that my being emotional in response to the death of somebody that I barely knew, they thought that that was disproportionate and therefore suspicious. Right, I oh, see. Okay. Thirdly, they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator, and I had the misfortune of matching that. Okay. So I so I had about six weeks of interactions with the police in which the the interactions took on the following dynamic that half the time they would speak to me as if I was a suspect and the other half the time they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. Okay. That's where my wanting to be a cop when I grew up before my teenage years, thinking about that as a career when I grew up, that's where that intersected. Yeah. Right. Okay. Like, just like I came from a single parent household, my father was never involved in my life in any way. I never met him until like much later in life after I was uh, exonerated. So that intersected with the good cop, bad cop technique in which half, you know, one officer took a more aggressive role, the other one pretended like he was a friend, he was opposed to what's going on, but somehow powerless to intervene. Mm. So eventually they got me to agree to take a lie detector test by telling me that there was some new information that had come into the police file and they wanted to share that with me. And that would allow me to be more helpful to them. 
Okay. And they could also get past the part of the conversation where they would talk to me as a, as a suspect. We could really focus in on finding the actual perpetrator. Yeah. So under those false pretenses, they got me to agree to take the polygraph, otherwise known as a lie detector. Yeah. So the next day, rather than go to school, I went to the police station for that test. Because it was a school day, my mother and grandmother, with whom I lived, thought I was in school, so they didn't call around looking for me. They drove me from Peekskill, which is in Westchester County, so uh, suburban, middle class, ethnically diverse. They drove me out of county, 40 minutes away, to the town of Brewster in Putnam County. Okay. So that meant I wasn't able to leave anymore on my own. I was dependent upon the police. Right. I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat. Uh, they gave me a four-page brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked. But then it had a lot of big words in it, which I didn't understand. But then I pushed past my own um, confusion by just thinking, well, I'm here to help the police. So what does it matter? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So from there, they put me in small room and gave me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous. And then he attached me into the machine. And by the way, this polygraphist was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator. Uh, Daniel Stevens was his name. And he was dressed like a civilian. He never identified himself as a cop. He never read me my rights. He was pretending to be a civilian. Oh, that is terrifying. Mm. And he attached the machine to me and then he launched into his third degree tactic. So he invaded my personal space. He raised his voice at me. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Wow. Towards the end of the interrogation, he said to me, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test results that you that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And when he what? said that, yeah, that really shot my fear through the roof. I yeah. can imagine. Can you, I can't imagine what I would do if I was if I yeah. was told that. And then the and then imagine then the the good cop comes in the room mm. and tells me, look, these other cops are going to harm you. I've been holding them off. I can't do that anymore. You have to help yourself. Listen. Just tell them what they want to hear, and they'll stop what they're doing. You could go home afterwards. So being young, naive, frightened, you're not going to be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, uh, overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. I was not thinking about the long term. All I was concerned was my safety in the moment. I I was in fear of my life because the fact that I did not know where I was and that nobody else knew where I was either, loomed very large in my mind. And then there was this, you know, on one hand, this false promise he gave me, and then there's this threat. So I made up, I decided to make up a story based on the information that they gave me that day and in the six weeks run up to it. And so by the time everything was said and done, I collapsed onto the floor into a fetal position and crying uncontrollably jesus oh my god obviously i was arrested yeah bless you that's awful i can't then before the trial uh they the uh the dna test came in from the fbi lab which showed that uh, semen found in the victim didn't match me Mm. but rather than acknowledge they made a mistake they continued to prosecute full speed ahead yeah so in order to counter that 
the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit perjury and commit fraud. Mm. So he suddenly came up with, this is right after the DNA didn't match me. He suddenly said, look, I remember that I forgot to document medical evidence that showed that the victim had been sleeping around, <gasps> which, is, which is what opened the door for the prosecutor to argue that she might have slept with someone else before Deskovic murdered and raped her. That's why his DNA is not there. It's not that he's innocent at all. And then he took it a step further and named another youth by name that he claimed had slept with the victim. Right. But but he never had a DNA test performed to prove that. He didn't even call this other youth as a witness. At the same time, the victim's family was not coming to court. So they had no idea that her reputation was being trashed in this way yeah. in order to wrongfully convict me. At the same time, the my public defender essentially didn't defend me. Oh. He never he never called my alibi as a witness. I was actually playing wiffle ball when the crime happened. He didn't try to discredit this medical examiner at all. He literally asked him no questions at all. He should have never represented me because of a conflict of interest. So yeah. this other youth that the prosecutor was falsely saying had slept with the victim was rep was uh, represented by another member of that public defender's office, right. and specifically by the lawyer supposed to be supervising him in my case. So okay. that conflict prevented the defense from asking him to give a DNA sample. It prevented the defense from calling him as a witness to explode this consensual sex. Yeah. How? My interrogation was not videotaped. It was not audio taped. There was no signed confession. There mm -hmm. was just the cop's word for it. And when they came to court, they left the threat and false promise out of their story. Mm. And my lawyer would not allow me to testify and tell what happened in the interrogation room. Right. Furthermore, when it came to the, when it came to the uh, confession, sometimes he argued that the confession never happened. At other times he argued that it happened, but it was false. And at still other times he argued that it happened and it was coerced. So okay. by taking this scattershot approach, I mean, the jury must have looked at him as somebody who just simply wasn't believable. The argument, like he was willing to say anything. He was taking all these inconsistent positions. Yeah. Yeah. But then also uh, a few other things, just for context, not to get into the weeds too much. Yeah. But, but it's illegal for polygraph evidence to be allowed into court unless both sides agree, because it's not reliable, even when it's done under the best of conditions, which this was not. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. Mm. But the judge allowed, okay, this judge came up with this backdoor rule. He's, he said that he would, he uh, because the confession happened while I was being polygraphed, he allowed this polygraphist to repeatedly tell the jury that I failed the polygraph test while blocking my lawyer from asking him any questions about how he formed his opinion. Yeah. And the last thing was that the victim's clothes were admitted into evidence. 
that included the bra. And okay. that that intersected with the false confession because in one of the statements that they that they coerced out of me, I said that I ripped her bra off. So there's some bras that you cannot rip off of a body. Right. So the jury asked to see the bra. And when that happened, the judge then told everybody that the evidence, including the bra, had been left in the courtroom over the weekend and that the janitors apparently thought that it was garbage. <gasps> and they no. threw it out. No way. <sighs> yes, they th- and they, they threw it out. This whole case sounds like a train wreck. It does. It really, it really was. Uh, you know, I was completely in over my head. I had never been arrested for anything. Yeah. Uh, I, I barely understood fully what was going on, and my lawyer would not allow me to have uh, my mother or any other adult uh, be involved in the conversations be- between us when discussing strategy and discussing the case. And so that really left me at a, uh, a really big uh, disadvantage. Yeah. And so, and so the end result of the you know, the, you know, let me just point out, there's an 80% conviction rate when there's a confession. Okay. So if you're defending somebody that has confessed, you have to answer that confession. You have to explain that confession. You have to disprove that confession in as many ways as you can. And you bring it all together in your closing argument. Yeah. But my lawyer didn't do any of that. Right. So the end result of it all was that I was uh, I, I, I was wrongfully convicted. Oh I've been charged as an adult. I you know I had and and I was therefore sentenced as an adult. You know I at the sentencing hearing I begged the judge to overturn the verdict because I was innocent and I referenced the DNA to support my contention. Mm. And he actually told me on the record, you know, to this, he said, maybe you are innocent. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So you would think if a judge says that, then there's doubt in the case. So the next logical thing that's supposed to flow from that is he supposed to find a way to overturn the conviction? You don't just sentence send somebody to prison if you what? think that maybe they're innocent. But instead, he didn't overturn the conviction at all, which he could have done by reversing any of the rulings he made against me in the course of the trial. He instead gave me a 15 to life sentence, Holy which Christ. I was sent to a maximum security prison to serve. And um, how did your how did your family take the conviction? Did they believe you or? They believe they they believe me, with the exception. I had one uncle that worked in law enforcement in in a nearby city in okay. the same county. Right. So, right. the cops managed to convince him that I was guilty. No uh, way. Yeah, right. and and uh, you know his daughter thought I was guilty, but beyond that, uh, everybody else believed in me. But the curious thing is that their belief in me did not translate into them trying to help me. No they, way. Didn't stay in, they didn't stay in touch with me. They didn't help me keep going morale wise. There were several times when my mother made rounds to everybody and was trying to get everybody to put in a manageable amount of money that everybody could do so that I could hire a lawyer yeah. to, mm. to become exonerated. And everybody declined to do that. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm so sorry that's happened to you. So essentially I did, you know, I, essentially, I did the, I did the sixteen years, you know, yeah. on myself. Yeah, and but, go ahead. Um, yeah, I would ask if all of these errors during the case, the men and women that were involved in it, did they face any punishment at all? No, they did not. Even no. since you've been exonerated. No. Wow. No, they did not. That's Let me. The... I would like to walk you through the appeals and how I was exonerated, and then I'll put a little bit more color to that last part. Absolutely, that would be great. Okay. So uh, I went to the appellate division. I had a different lawyer, different office. This lawyer did a great job. She raised 10 issues of law. You know, all the issues that I mentioned to you, she, she raised all of them. And she did argue rather strenuously that I was innocent. Good. She argued that the verdict was against the weight of the evidence. The prosecution hadn't proven guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, that there was legally insufficient evidence of guilt that my, you know, all my rights were violated. Everything I mentioned to you, I'll leave it at that. Mm. In, in all told, she, she argued 10 issues. And the, uh, well, first of all, the prosecution's answer to the DNA evidence, they made the argument that a negative DNA test result is no insulation to a guilty verdict. Okay. Which is kind of, you know, crazy because yeah. the only evidence they have is this confession obtained under questionable circumstances and DNA is referred to as the gold standard of evidence. Yeah, of course. Uh, so... The court, the court ruled that I was not in custody, that I was free to come and go as I wanted. So they ruled that the statements were voluntary. Mm -hmm. They 
they wrote that there was overwhelming evidence of guilt. And then they got rid of the rest of my issues in one sentence by saying they looked at the rest of my issues and either found them to be without merit or not preserved for review. And they then ruled against me five nothing. Wow. And it all went downhill from there. Yeah. The argument motion was denied in one word. Then the New York Court of Appeals are a higher state. So the procedure is you have to get, you have to ask them for permission to appeal to them. And then only if they give you permission, then you can present your issues. Okay. So they declined to give me permission to appeal to them. Mm. Then I filed in federal court, but because my attorney was given the wrong information on the filing procedure by the court clerk, my paperwork arrived four days too late. Right. So the district attorney asked the court to just rule that I was late and dismissed my case instead Ugh. of getting to the issues. Christ. And that's what the court did. Okay. Yeah. And then I then I challenged that ruling in front of um, uh, three more times. I went to the federal court of appeals. Uh, judge Sotomayor was one of the judges who would become a U.S. Supreme Court justice later, and she signed off on that decision. Then we moved to re-argue the motion in front of them, and that was denied. Um, and uh, then I went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they declined to give me permission to appeal to them. Okay. So that was the end of my appeals. Jesus. And in one of them, I was asking for additional DNA testing. Yeah. And, and before that, I had written in a letter, I had asked the district attorney to allow me to have further testing, and she didn't. And then I put it put it in the, in the federal court. So that's the end of the appeals, right? right? So that means I'm permanently locked out of the courthouse. Jesus. Eleven years in now. There's only two ways back in when that happens. Okay. If, it, if there's a change in the law. Right. And the second thing would be if you can find some new evidence, which would probably have resulted in a different uh, verdict. Right. Okay. Okay. So I wrote, uh, so I didn't have, again, I didn't have any money to hire an investigator or an attorney. So I wrote letters for four years looking for someone to take my case for free, hoping that they could find some new evidence to try to get back in court with. Mm-hmm. And uh, re- rarely got responses back other than the occasional no. Right. And then I went to the parole board where, in part because instead of expressing remorse and taking responsibility, I, I maintained my innocence. Because, because of that, a, a big reason because of that, and then they cite nature of the crime, they, they, they declined to parole me. Right. And I wound, they told me do another two years and come back and see us. And then I, I did another year and then I was exonerated. Okay. So three things happened. So firstly, uh, I, the Innocence Project agreed to represent me. The way that I got their help was kind of a random way. So one of the letters that I wrote to, and I wrote a letter to a book author in care of the publishing company, but somebody in the publishing company sent the letter to an investigator, uh, Claudia Whitman in, instead. Mm. And when she saw the DNA, she never heard of a case where some of the DNA didn't match somebody, but there was still a conviction. Yeah. Yeah. So she knew that I was innocent right away. As soon as I proved the test results to her, of course. she knew I was innocent. So then, so she told me, write the Innocence Project. She lobbied them. She got other respected legal entities to also lobby them. Good. And then uh, there was a caseworker, Maggie. Her name was Maggie Taylor. And when the, the Innocence Project 
didn't want to take the case because of the, I was already excluded by the DNA. I mean, the way they were freeing people was they were just getting DNA test results and then introducing it into the court as newly discovered evidence. Right. They couldn't do that in my case because the DNA already didn't match me from before. Yeah. Mm. So they didn't want to take the case. So Maggie presented it a second time. She came up with a different theory how the DNA could be used and not, and, and, and still be something new. And they shut that down. And then she presented it a third time. And this time her idea, which was something that I had suggested to her, the uh, DNA data bank, uh, this time, well, uh, they agreed to take it, the case based on that. So that was the first thing. Second thing was former Westchester District Attorney uh, Janine Pirro, who does a lot of commentary on uh, television. Uh, she left office. Okay. So I would fought all my appeals and blocked the testing. And the third thing was that we got lucky that when we put the crime scene DNA evidence into the database, uh, it matched the actual perpetrator ah. who, whose DNA was only in the databank because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second victim uh, just three and a half years later. It was a school teacher and had two children. Oh, no. Jesus. So on September twenty, uh, so on September twenty second, two thousand six, the conviction was overturned, and I was released. Uh, and I reported back to court November second, two thousand six. At which point, all the charges against me were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. Bit too late. Yeah, very bloody good. Very too late, but yeah. But what was the um? What was the first thing that you did as soon as you as soon as you were exonerated and left prison? Well, there was a pre- I, I I left. Well, I was released from court. So they brought me from the prison to the court and then the court overturned the conviction. So I, I left from the courtroom rather than from the prison. But first thing I did was, uh, well, there was a press conference, which I was not prepared for. And when I it was my turn to speak, my first words were, is this really happening? Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, of course. And from there, everything I ever wanted to say in 16 years, but could never get anybody to hear me. Uh, it all came out. So just when I thought I finished, was finishing up, yeah. a different topic occurred to me. So that went on for like two, two and a half hours. Mm. And from there, we uh, there was a big luncheon. My first meal was, uh, I had uh, mussels with Fran Diavolo sauce. Uh, oh. Ziti uh, on the side. Wow. <laughs> had a Neapolitan ice cream. Oof. And that, that was my first meal. So nice. Good choice. Yeah. I'd love to tell you that right after that, we had this tremendous party that lasted to the next day. I'd love to tell you that, but <laughs> oh. that would not be true. Yeah. Oh. By that point, you know, I mean, I went to my aunt's house and by that point, uh, I had long since long, long, lost touch with everybody. Of course, I, mean, I was yeah. a, a big, big, big skill. Everybody believed that I was guilty. Everybody hated me. You know, that was facilitated by the uh, coerced false confession. You know, and like, and like I said, the overwhelming majority of my extended family did not come to see me. And even the people that did, you know, like by the last six years, my mother came to see me like once every six months. So in many ways, I did the time by myself. And so, yeah. you know, I lost track of everybody. I remember just sitting at the table and everybody was drinking coffee and talking a little bit about what happened. And, you know, a couple of other people came over. But I really, I felt out of place. I couldn't relate to any of the people. So I remember I just got up and just went outside to just sit outside during the 
you know, in the dark, which is something you can't you can't do in the in, in, in the prison. Yeah. Yeah. In the dark, they closed the yard. So mm. it was then, a, you know, so that was really, I mean, so between just sitting outside and then, you know, I took a, I took a bath for the first time in 16 years. So that wow. was, that was the extent of any, uh, celebratory yeah yeah well i mean it's the little things that you've missed out on that you need to that we take for granted like Mm. you don't right yeah yeah exactly no i do i appreciate uh i appreciate the feeling the sun on my face fresh air uh freedom of movement you know the opportunities that exist education wise if you're willing to you know work hard i mean i do believe to a large extent you can be what you want to be yeah. yeah. Do you find yourself feeling bitter or do you feel angry that the people didn't face any repercussions and that you were put away for so long? No, because I want to enjoy my life as much as I can. I yeah. can't do that if I'm angry or bitter. Mm. Another line of reasoning also is that um, I feel like I've lost so much. Why would I want to, in effect, give them the rest of my life? Yeah, of course. That's very true. Mm. And it's not like I'd be affecting them if I was angry or bitter. I mean, I would really be the only loser in that situation. Yeah. And as I mentioned, uh, I, the vehicle that allows me to actualize that is I take the energy that I feel and I channel it into the advocacy work. That, I do. that is yeah. such a positive way of thinking about it. Absolutely. You know, I hadn't thought, I hadn't thought about that. When I was thinking about interviewing you, mm. that was one of the bigger questions I wanted to ask you. And I did Every, wonder. Yeah. And I think that's such a good answer. Yeah, that is. To that. And, um, How are you with your family now? Are you still close? Are you closer with them, or? Well, I wouldn't say I'm close to them, but uh, you know, when I first started out, you know, it was awkward when I would meet up with them because I knew who they were uh, intellectually from memories of interacting with them when I was younger. Yeah. yeah. You know, but I was a different person now, and so were they. And when you spend long amounts of time away from people, just the evolution and personalities and character and everything you become like a different uh, person so it was awkward at first but i think i'm in a good place now uh, you know that uh, i do i do enjoy some some family interaction i mean i wouldn't it would probably be a stretch to say i'm close with them but i yeah. do get to but i do spend some time with them i do get some some interaction with them yeah that's good i do want to um get on to your current work but i did have some burning questions about prison first that i wanted to yeah, ask let's do, that. Let's do the prison yeah yeah <laughs> um do you have any yeah. do you have any distinct memories of prison that you would like to share like some main ones yeah i yes i do um so the it was very violent there they were three or four stabbings or cuttings every day in the facility where I was, there was a lot of gang activity. So you always had to be on alert. Your adrenaline was always running. You know, I had a uh, bullseye on my back because I was there for rape with uh, people convicted of sex offenses. Yeah. Uh, The the food was terrible. Uh, Sometimes it was burned. Other times it wasn't uh, fully cooked. Mm-hmm. They had a system of maintaining order in the prison mm-hmm. where if a prisoner was found guilty of having broken a prison rule that they would be kept in the cell 23 hours a day. They would send you less food. Sometimes the food would be three or four days old. You would uh, you, you would only get one hour a day recreation in a small caged area with maybe a pull-up iron if you were lucky. Wow. You could not go to the store while you were on that status or use the phone. So there were 
times in the course of my incarceration where I was beat up sometimes. One time I nearly lost my life. I'll get into that in a minute. Mm. But uh, the impact of that was that I was subjected to those sanctions because, you know, because I tried my best to defend myself. I mean, that meant the prison considered that I was fighting. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Though that was what I mean. And I had a frequently... Uh, fight off feelings of hope, hopelessness, helplessness, you know, thoughts of giving up, suicidal ideation. Yeah. So I had to fight those things uh, off. Uh, sometimes people ask me how I got through it. Uh, belief in God was one thing. Another thing was I used to go to the law library and learn the law because I didn't trust the lawyers to defend me anymore. Yeah, yeah, of course. I used to collect articles about other people who were exonerated and and what you know study you know what route did they take who who helped them hmm. uh I, I i used to uh so i took advantage of the limited educational programs they had i got gd i got the associates i got a, a year towards the bachelor's before funding was cut and i did other vocational trades and um, from 1998 to 2006 i read three or four nonfiction books each uh you know each uh each week and i learned i learned how to play chess uh, I age in this elaborate delusion when I was playing chess or basketball or ping pong, I pretend like I'm a professional player. And so was but, it, yeah. but it wasn't like kids playing on the playground. I mean, it was like a defense mechanism. I needed yeah, to yeah. leave prison for a few hours. And yeah. I used to cut pictures out of nature scenes and you could hang. There was a small part of the prison wall where you were allowed to hang pages up of nature scenes. So no. I used to, I used to do that. That's but in terms of some a couple of other vivid things, so firstly, uh, towards the end of my sentence minimum, the prison authorities told me that uh, if I wanted to have any chance at all of making parole, that I would have to take and complete the sex offender training program. Right. But the problem is that kind of, they ran it kind of similar to AA, so where you have to admit you have a problem in order for any. any oh my guilt. god! Oh, I see. So, yeah, they wanted you. Yeah, so they wanted me to admit guilt. They did everything in their power to try to force me into that class. Yeah. You know, but I, I wasn't willing to go because I would have been required to admit guilt to the instructor and to the other prisoners, and they wanted all of the details. Like I couldn't just say, "Yeah, I did it." They wanted like a blow by blow account of everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in writing, not even verbally, they wanted it all. In, in writing. And so, you know, I refused to do that. So that was just vivid uh, memory. You know, they, they did everything they could to force me into that. I mean, they, re they refused to transfer me closer to home. They refused to transfer me from a maximum security prison to a, a medium. You know, they wouldn't, they had a family reunion program where your family could come up, say, on a Friday and stay with you on a trailer located on the prison grounds from Friday until Sunday. And yeah. they refused to allow me to participate in that with a family member until I, unless I took that program. Uh, so they, they, all those things they tried to. So you know, mean. They, yeah. yeah. They had an honor block where they had a few creature comforts that, you know, had like a stove and a refrigerator and you, you could go to recreation more and you could go to a store once a week rather than. So, you know, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't allow me to be on the waiting list for that until I took the program. So they did everything under the sun. Yeah. Good, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't break because all those things paled compared to the larger uh, point. Yeah. So that was one vivid memory. And I think that the, uh, I think the worst time of it all, I remember. So I was, 
I was in solitary confinement, so I got sent there once in right. six years. So I was in solitary confinement because there were four prisoners that were coming to stab me because as far as they were concerned, I was a rapist. Yeah. You know, Jesus. and I didn't I didn't wait for them to do that. I, I took the battle to them yeah. <laughs> and I did the best that I could. But oh. I'm not a fighter. I'm not a criminal either. Yeah. 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 So I got the worst end of it. Uh, you know, I got hit multiple times on the side of my head with a 10 pound uh, weight plate. So I almost got killed. They sent me into the solitary confinement where they take the majority of your property. The lights are on all the time. Uh, you can't see this. You can't see the sky. There's no clock. The only way you know, have an idea of what time of the day it is, is because uh, if they serve breakfast food on the tray, uh, if you're not awake, when they come around to feed you, they don't feed you. Like that happened to me. I woke up and they were feeding the prisoner in the cell next to me and they refused to feed me. They told me, be, be awake on time next time. Oh, Jeez. my so God. I was there in that situation. And you try things, you know, they let you have a couple of books. But, you know, after two or three days, it's 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 over with. You know, mm. you render it. They don't, they, they won't, they don't bring, they bring it around once a week. And then, you know, you try to sleep some of the time away. But after a while, I mean, how many 14-hour days can you do sleeping? And yeah. you can't sleep anymore. And then you just, it's just you and the, the cell wall and the and, and and the ceiling. And so while I was wrongfully imprisoned, right, nearly killed, I'm there because I'm defending myself against people who think I'm a rapist because I've been wrongfully convicted. And while I'm there in the middle of all that, that's when I got word from the federal court that I lost because the court clerk gave my lawyer the wrong information and my paperwork arrived four days too late. Fuck. That was the lowest point. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I'm strong enough to be able to deal with no, that. No, yeah. Like, I don't know how you've done hit it. Hit after hit after hit. Yeah. It's just... So that was the hardest point. The other thing I'll say is, in terms of on a prolonged basis, the last year in prison I did was the toughest. Mm. because, you know, my appeals basically got me through the first 11 years. You just think, well, I just have to hold on just for a year or two for the next appeal, which I'm sure I'm going to win mm. because I'm innocent and the facts and the law support me. Yeah. So that four years of letters not getting responses and getting denied parole also, that being shut. So at that point, uh, I thought that I was going to die in prison for a crime I didn't commit. Yeah. But it was at that moment, you know, that I had placed an ad in uh, a local newspaper, well, a, a, a paper called the Sacramento Bee, which was actually in California. So it really wasn't local at all. It was 3000 miles away. Mm. Uh, and by the way, I came to place the ad in that newspaper because I had placed the ad in a more New York based newspaper and some sergeant who worked as a sergeant, a correction officer, um, in another prison, not even the one where I was at, he saw the ad and he wrote me up for placing the ad. No because, way. In the, because in the ad, I mentioned that I'm innocent and, you know, Jesus. I need somebody to try to, I'm not just looking for a pen pal. I'm also looking yeah. for somebody who can help connect me to the necessary legal help I need. So maybe there's somebody, you know, that you could ask to, to look at my case or, Maybe you could do some fundraising activities so I could hire. So the sergeant in another prison wrote me up, right, for soliciting. Oh. Ugh. So 
you know, and then, then like a week after that, you know, uh, I, I placed the ad in a different place and I got in trouble for that too. And I went down to see this hearing officer and he said, what, what, what's the deal here, Deskovic? Are you back again? The same thing? And I said, look, I'm not trying to break the rules. I'm not trying to, you know, be a problem. I'm innocent, okay? I'm here wrongfully. Yeah. My appeals are over. I don't have a lawyer, okay? I could be a good prisoner and place no ads at all and just stay in prison the rest of my life. Or I could write a letter trying to get somebody to help me. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to write letters to try to help me. So whatever you guys going to do, you do. I'm going to keep doing what I do. Yeah, you I, did I got to try to get out of here before I die in here. You didn't yeah. give so, up, and that's great. So, yeah, so hence putting an ad did a paper 3,000 miles away. Yeah. yeah. You know, and uh, the person who answered that letter, uh, uh, he was uh, his name was Scott, and he became like a pen pal. And he, he, he was a crime. He had been a crime victim, and he didn't feel like the system really uh, treated him fairly. So he believed that I was innocent. So he saw himself and me as fellow crime victims just in different ways. Yeah. Right. And... Uh, he, he arrived kind of in the nick of time just by letter. Cause I, I was openly asking him in letters, look, should I just quit? You know, this is never going to work. Maybe I should just go ahead and kill myself and be done with it all, mm. you know, get out of here that way. You know, so, so that was another, but that last year, I mean, that was all context to me trying to explain how that last year in prison yeah. uh, was the most uh, difficult just battle after battle yeah, constantly. Yeah, That's I, Jesus. When you were, no, but I just did not give up though. No, you didn't, and that's amazing. <laughs> no matter all that, I <laughs> I refused to give up. I just did not give up. That's great. I kept going. I kept going. It's so admirable. It so Many other people would have quit a long time. Ago, oh, right? definitely. Yeah, I, I would have done. Yeah, hundred percent. Like especially when it just seems every, they it seemed that they had an answer for everything and they had and a way to get you. And it was all the wrong answers as well. Yeah. Like there was no evidence to back it up. But that's well, I, I was going to ask though. Mm. Like in prison, did you have anyone that you can confi- confined in, or was your roommate? Was he nice? Like what was it like? Sure. So there was another prisoner named Frank Sterling, mm. and Frank Frank and I uh, kept each other going for thirteen and a half years. So. Frank had a similar case. Right. And, you know, it's another false confession case. Oh, uh, my gosh. I, I believed in Frank's innocence because, first of all, the confession they got out of him, they hypnotized him first. <gasps> and then they, and then, yeah, I, 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 I kid you not. So Jesus. they hypnotized and got a confession out of him, and that was the case against him. Wow. And then the actual, the actual perpetrator confessed to four different witnesses not cops but like civilian with but the cops and the courts dismissed all of that as just being bragging teenage bragging yeah so oh, okay. based on that i believed in frank's innocence and frank believed in mine because of the dna okay so we used to get together once every six weeks and half the conversation would be trying to keep each other going morale wise and the other half the time would be like a brainstorm session like you know what's what's the next move that we can make to try to get the hell out of here? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know. So uh, yeah, so we kept each other going for thirteen and a half years. That's and great. I was, I was exonerated before Frank, 
and Frank was exonerated by DNA testing also uh, a couple oh. of years after me. Oh, oh, that's amazing that you both yeah. got out. Yes. Oh, God, he's yes. out. So there was, Frank was the main part. There were a couple of, there were a few other people that I confided in here and there, but no, no not, not very many because yeah. in general, you want to keep your head down. You know, I, you know, I don't, uh, I remember, I don't, telling people that I was innocent would it would result in them asking me a few questions I yeah mean, certainly one of them would be well what are the charges mm. and, and i didn't need to have it was bad enough at times and people would discover what i was incarcerated for and the problems that that would bring yeah. but you know i couldn't i, I couldn't like proliferate that by yeah. telling people you know mm. what i really you're in it what are, what are you innocent of what are the what's the charges and, yeah exactly so, you know so that's uh do you yeah. uh speak to frank now or uh, I did. Frank, Frank and I were in touch for about seven years after he came home, but then, then, uh, then he passed away. Oh, oh that's gosh. sad. Yeah, but... that is sad. Yeah. Yeah. This whole. I did, I did get word. You know, I did get word from his lawyers that you know he was being exonerated, and so I, I drove up. I drove up to five hours and to be present in the courtroom. Oh, you know, and, that's great. And I spent, I spent uh, the first four years. Uh, excuse me. I spent the first four days, uh, his first four days of freedom with him. Oh, that's days. lovely. So, that's so nice. This whole your whole journey's been one serious game of chess, hasn't it? It really has been. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Thank God I've made the right moves. Yeah. Mm. So, um, what do you do now then? Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> so I'm an advocate. You know, I started. I um, I was an individual advocate for about five years. Okay. I was doing presentations across the country and. I caught on as a weekly columnist as well. I was trading privacy for awareness by doing media interviews in order to further the policy issues. And I was regularly meeting with elected officials. Right. I, I got a scholarship from Mercy College to finish the bachelor's. And then I got a master's degree with my thesis was written on wrongful conviction causes and reform. Mm-hmm. Then after five years, and it was a really hard five years. I mean, to just take a half a second on that. You know the it, it was psychological after effects. Yeah. You know, and then the, the stigma of having been in prison. Yeah, wrongfully, but having been there for sixteen years. So how much of that rubbed off on you? Was it safe to be alone someplace with you? Yeah. Uh, so there's that technology. You know, the world was different. Technology was different. So GPS, cell phones, internet uh, was all was all hadn't been event, invented. Culture was different. City and towns looked different. So I felt like a fish out of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, they release you without anything. You know, the New York State does have financial compensation, but you have to—that's a process. You have to get a lawyer and file a lawsuit, and you know. So I was always passed over for gainful employment, you know. And I had some particular challenges because recalling that I was in prison from age seventeen to thirty-two, so I had never before lived on my own. I never went shopping. I never had a, had had a driver's license. I never had to balance a budget or or write write a check so yeah it was really hard for me uh but after about five years i did get some financial compensation and uh, i wanted to take my advocacy work for the next to the next level so i started uh the jeffrey deskman foundation for justice Mm -hmm. and as i mentioned we've been able to free 10 people we helped pass uh three laws so videotaping interrogations uh, identification reform Mm -hmm. dna database expansion amazing Uh, I'm an advisory board member of the coalition, the national coalition group called It Could Happen to You, which the foundation is part of. And okay. we do our policy work through them now uh, together. 
and we were able to pass a couple of laws pertaining to oversight of prosecutors. Uh, we passed a different law which pertained to uh, sharing evidence between the prosecution and defense early on in the process. And you know, we passed another law in uh, Pennsylvania pertaining to automatic expungement. So there were, there were people in Pennsylvania that were exonerated, but still in court, but they still had records, which okay. would help, which would hurt them when they went for job interviews. Okay, so, okay. Yeah. So we have ten cases that are active now. I'm an I'm an attorney, as I mentioned, and mm. you know, I've entered a few of those cases myself as co-counsel. We're pushing policy changes in New York. So we're trying to uh, uh, we're trying to pass repass the oversight for the, the prosecutors, and we're also try- when they passed the law mandating videotaping interrogations, they made exceptions. Uh, they made exception for sex offenses, drug cases, and certain types of murder cases. So we're trying to get rid of those exceptions. Uh, there's another bill which would prevent the police from using deception. Mm-hmm. when interrogating because that's coercive yeah and we are we are pushing a uh, parole reform as well i mean a lot of people are denied parole that are worthy applicants just by the by the parole board just referencing what the crime was instead of evaluating whether they've been rehabilitated or not right. so there's that and what's called elder parole so you know we're saying that if someone's 55 and they've served 15 years they should be entitled to a parole board uh review you know because a prison is not is not uh, equipped to deal with their advanced medical needs and a lot of people uh, age out of crime. So it really is a safe population that could be released. So that's what we're doing in New York. And Pennsylvania, which is a nearby state, uh, Pennsylvania is one of 15 states that does not have compensation. Okay. So we're trying to push that. And we're, again, the oversight for the prosecutors. In California, we're trying to get the oversight for the prosecutors. And uh, we're, we, we see a chance to get rid of the death penalty there, and which we're motivated to do, amongst many other reasons, uh, the obvious risk of uh, executing somebody uh, innocent. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so th- those are the policy work. You know, but we're also we're trying to fundraise as well. You know, um, I, I gave us a running start. I donated seven figures to the organization. But after mm. about three and a half years, I couldn't keep writing large checks. So I had to get rid of the employees and then get converted things to... Uh, volunteer organization. So in terms of right now, we have two part-time uh, people, and, but we're, and uh, we have about six or seven lawyers that when we approve cases, we pitch the cases to them and they carry out the legal and investigative strategies that we've outlined. Oh, okay. So in, in that way, we have 10 cases going now besides the people that we helped to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, we have about 20 volunteers as well. But ultimately, you know, I would like to again have uh, in-house employees. I know what went well before. I know it could be done better. So in terms of that, we're always looking for board members. We're looking for uh, celebrity spokespeople, people who have a bigger following on social media. We apply for uh, grants as well. Yeah. And my crazy idea is we have a crowdfunding site on the website, Patreon, which is for people who are willing to be recurring monthly donors. So my idea was what if there were 25,000 people willing to, uh, you know, willing to part with $3 or $5 on a on recurring monthly basis, you know, mm-hmm. that would give us a large budget, which we could then use to have in-house attorneys, investigators, paralegals, and other. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That would increase our, uh, that would increase our capacity. Mm-hmm. And we would also be able to 
do policy work in three additional states, you know, and just try to do something uh, with the, the federal government as well, rather than just in the three states. So, you know, trying to do that. There is there is a program called Amazon Smile Program, which when people <laughs> register for a charitable organization, mm. uh, Amazon uh, donates a small percentage of the sale to the nonprofit without it increasing the cost to the to the assumer. So, you know, Jeffrey Desmond Foundation for Justice does is one of the organizations people could register on Amazon. So we're, you know, pushing that out there as well and chasing donors and trying to free Nate, free people and change laws. So that's good. Um, if you give it at the end of the show, if you give us the link to your Patreon, we will give that to all of our listeners as well. Yep. So they Absolutely, can check that out yeah. and possibly subscribe. That would be wonderful. Sure. I mean, the end, the end game vision, you know, is that I would ultimately love to have a, chapter in uh, office in each state and ultimately in each country because i see wrongful conviction as a worldwide issue yeah definitely, definitely yeah mm-hmm. and the places where we're not hearing about wrongful convictions is not because they're not happening there it's because um people are there's nobody working on the cases yeah you know, there's doing any of the exonerative work i mean some countries their legal system is so bad that they don't policy work needs to be done just to just for there to be even a way of bringing new evidence back to the courtroom there's no there's no procedure to even bring evidence back to court yeah i completely get you and it is a it is a worldwide issue but this uh, yeah i think that's an amazing goal to have to be honest mm. yeah absolutely and we support you 100 every step of the way yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, the sort of last question I wanted to ask you just before we leave you and everything is, you know, are you content now? Are you are you happy? Yes, I'm content now. I'm I'm happy mostly. Yeah. I mean, I'm still I'm still trying to put the social part of my life fully together. I mean, that's yeah. not fully, uh, fully in place. I think when that's in place, and I think that you know when, when also you know we have we have more of the funding in place that I want to have. I mean, then I'd be able to maybe enjoy things a little bit more but yeah yeah so overall though i am overall i mean with those things aside which would get me to an even better place mm. overall globally i i am i am happy I that's mean, good I, you know i i enjoy i try to enjoy the world i, I like mm. I, I try to do that by trying new things yeah going to new places sampling new food activities i haven't done before i mm. do enjoy the I do enjoy traveling and uh, play, uh, play, uh, playing chess as well. So mm. I well, don't like, blame you. I, like... I mean, you want to see the world now. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Have you seen the UK? Have you been down here? No, I really, really want to. I mean, I'd love to do somewhat of an. I'd love to do like a working vacation over there. Oh, do yeah. it! Yeah. Come and do a bunch of presentations, do some media, meet with some elected officials, have plenty of free time mixed in with that. Mm. And you know, maybe, you know, maybe maybe go for a month, right? Yeah. yeah. Fing- fingers crossed. When stuff goes back to normal, you can do that. Mm. Yeah, I would love to be able to. Uh, I would love to be able to uh, to, to to do that. Sure. Yeah, mm. and we're we're going to try and spread your story throughout the UK as much as we can. Yeah, absolutely. For you, yeah, that would be that would absolutely be uh, be wonderful. Um, you know, there there is a movie I'd recommend people to watch. Mm. Uh, well, actually, two things. So, firstly, there's a documentary short out about me called Conviction, which is on Amazon Prime. Okay. Oh, cool. 20, Twenty minutes long, and it's about uh, my advocacy work. 
uh, and life post-exoneration. So it's different than the other uh, documentaries out there that are more like legal legalese or more yeah. into the facts of the case. This is more uh, what I just mentioned. Mm. So I would recommend people, you know, watch uh, watch that. Uh, but the other thing uh, so far, and, and, I, and I keep up to it because I feel like it's kind of my homework in trying to keep current in the field. So I do... I do watch uh, a lot of uh, uh, movies uh, based on wrongful conviction. Okay. So hmm. as it turns out, by coincidence, because I'm being interviewed uh, by YouTube today, hmm. uh, I think that the best movie on wrongful conviction was actually around a case that took place in the UK. Okay. Oh, really? Nice. And so I want to recommend to to the listeners and yourselves watch it when you need something to do. Yeah. So it, the movie is called, and it was a brilliant title because it was kind of like a play on words. It's like a a, a double entendre with this a double meaning. Love it. Yeah, yeah. So the name of the movie was called uh, is called uh, in the name of the father. Right. And it was about uh, yeah, and it was about the uh, the the Guildford Four. And so, uh, not to be a spoiler, but it's a wrongful conviction case that happened in the UK. Mm. And let me let so there was a father and a son co-defendants along with other other people, but they're like the main um, protagonists there. Yeah. And so, when his lawyer finally goes to uh, I forgot if it's the court clerk or from the the police department, one one of the two, and they they he mentioned the clerk hands the lawyer the folder. But it's for the father's case. It's right. not for her client. It's for the father's case. Right. Oh, my and God. The, the key information that had been withheld, which became that was in that folder. And that's what exonerated. Uh, that's what exonerated Jerry Conlon and the rest of the co-defendants. So it was a really big case. So I would encourage everyone to check that out. Nice. Yeah, yeah we definitely will. Absolutely, well, yeah. We are coming to the end of our show now, so we just yeah. want to thank you so much for coming on yeah, and telling us your you. story. It's been amazing. Yeah, thank you for thank you for having me on, and I'll I'll email you the links. And uh, yeah, it was great today. I was uh, international today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. You've been great. Mm. Thank you. And absolutely. Hey, hopefully, when I do come over there. Um, you know, just send me like the city of town. I would love to meet you in person. Oh, absolutely. Great. Yeah, we'll, we'll grab a beer. <laughs> yeah, it'd be yeah. our pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.